Family legacy is something I believe that you live and leave. I think for too many people, legacy is about something that they leave behind at the sacrifice of enjoying life. How many business owners have you met? Because I've met so many that they say stuff like that they're doing things for the family, but the family's just saying, we just like to spend more time with them. We like to have them present when they're actually here. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. We'll start with today's quote, which is, it's up to us to live the legacy that was left for us and to leave a legacy that is worthy of our children and future generations. And that was said by Christine Gregory. Our guest today, Garrett Gunderson, is the founder of Wealth Factory, a company that provides personal financial education, guidance, and family legacy programs for entrepreneurs, professionals, and small business owners. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of Killing Sacred Cows, Overcoming the Financial Myths That Are Destroying Your Prosperity. Garrett, it's great to have you join us today, and I'm really excited to talk with you about uh, building family legacies and some of the interesting work that you're doing. Good to be here. Now, I've called you by three different names, Robert, Bob, and I actually said to someone you referred me to, I called you Bobby. He goes, does he let you call him that? I'm like, I don't know. It just felt like I would say that right now. All of those are okay. Anything but Rob works. I like Bobby. I'm going with Bobby, man. You can do it. It's your party. Okay, great. From my experience, either good, bad, or indifferent, it seems that a lot of our financial values are rooted in our upbringing. Can you share a little bit about your upbringing, how that influenced your values about money and being an entrepreneur? Definitely. Um, my grandfather was the only one I knew that was somewhat an entrepreneur in my family because my great-grandfather actually left San Giovanni, Italy in 1913. And then he left there because he couldn't make ends meet. He really literally couldn't put food on the table came to uh, United States all the way over to Utah to a really small place in central Utah called Sunnyside, Utah, where he was a goat herder for a while and then eventually became a coal miner. And then my grandfathers were coal miners. And then my dad was a coal miner. So I definitely got work ethic. That was something that was handed down to me. And my grandfather was actually a little bit entrepreneurial because he did two things. One, he repaired TVs and sold Zenith TVs. Remember those huge things that look like yeah. furniture for the house, right? <laughs> and then he also played the accordion, which is a little bit too cliched for an Italian to be playing the accordion. But ultimately, they went and played in weddings and everything. And this guy was so admired in his community from people giving him baked goods and enchiladas and you name it, and to him winning community awards because he just knew everyone. And I loved that about him. And I got to kind of venture out there with him and go on some of his TV calls. And so that kind of brought the entrepreneurial piece. But on the other side, I think that what was really handed down to me was a savers type mentality because it was all about just squirreling up enough money to make ends meet, to make sure that you'd be okay. You never knew when the next mine strike was. So there was a ton of scarcity that came with that. When was your first entrepreneurial in endeavor? Was it early or did you pursue the corporate path first? entrepreneur all the way. Um, my first official one was when I was 15 years old. My dad being a coal miner brought home the surface vehicles when the bosses were in town. And I'd help him clean them. 
And then my mom worked for a credit union where they'd repossess vehicles. And I went and talked to the president there and I used to clean those so they could resell them. And I launched my first official business that wasn't like babysitting and lawn mowing called Garrett Gunnerson's Car Care. Definitely very innovative with the names back in those days <laughs> at 15. At 15. So did you go to college? I did go to college. I actually still operated that business a little bit during college. And I started my financial services career uh, when I was a sophomore in college as well. So I was really good at talking to the professors and having them put tests in the testing center or just taking the final and getting my grade based upon what the final was and navigating the system of like taking on more hours than I could actually handle, then auditing a few courses, dropping a few courses to maintain my 3.5 so I could keep my scholarship. But I did graduate barely simply because I was making good money and running my business. And so college, my senior year, felt like it was getting in the way more than helping. A 3.5 is pretty good for an entrepreneur. Hey, uh, I have this Italian mom that if you didn't get grades, you were getting beat, man. I mean, there was no two ways about it. You got good grades and there was no choice in the matter. So I developed really good habits based upon fear. <laughs> so I'd love for you to bridge these two concepts for me. So I hear one group of people saying, I love Garrett. I work with Garrett. And then other people are like, I don't understand what Garrett does. So, you, you know, I know you're focused on financial education, not advising or planning. I think you've helped create a new category. I'd love to help explain kind of what that is, what the difference is, and how you actually work with entrepreneurs. The people that are confused about what we do, it comes from a few things. One, we're not a done-for-you service, so we don't manage money. We're not saying, hand your money over and we'll build retirement plans for you. We're more emphasizing for the entrepreneur what I would call a virtual family office. When I was 22 years old, I was shadowing this guy in New York who was working with people on Wall Street as their financial planner. And he would go into a family office that was representing that individual that was, you know, highly affluent. And I was like, this is amazing. You got attorneys and accountants and investment advisors and, you know, risk management people all around the table doing due diligence, analyzing everything, working together. And at 22 years old, I naively said, I'm going to build that for the entrepreneur that isn't as high net worth, but is growing their business. And a lot of the wealth is within that business. And help them improve. And one of the major things that were going on in those family offices were improving cash flow by saving tax, preserving wealth with the proper asset protection and estate planning. So I built a comprehensive financial services firm with a virtual family office, meaning we can work in all 50 states. You write us a check. We're not going to manage your money. We're going to help you boost your cash flow, get your entire financial house in order, get a second opinion on every single thing that you do with an emphasis of how do we put more money into your life and build a legacy that will last and think how to pass on non-monetary assets for generations to come. So you work with financial advisors and probably lawyers. You act as the kind of quarterback? We are the quarterback. We're the financial quarterback and we're helping them build the plan, navigate the plan, analyze the plan and implement the plan. If someone has a good financial person, we're just getting a, a checkup for them and going, yep, they're great. We communicate with them. If they're missing that person, we actually bring that individual in to implement. Or if something's broken, we bring in the individual to fix it. And we build that team out of accountants and attorneys and everyone for the individual. Got it. So that's pragmatically what you do. I know one of your big passions, though, where you spend a lot of time is helping helping people and families think about legacy and their legacies. And one of the 
one of the families I think you've studied a lot is the Rockefellers. And we'll include this in our show note, but you have a free book on your website titled, What Would the Rockefellers Do? So I, I'd love to hear um, you talk a little bit about what they did, how they ran their business and how they focused on their legacy and maybe, you know, the different than the Vanderbilts, which is another family that's often talked about. Yeah. And I'm going to give like the additional insight that I've gathered even since the book, because the Vanderbilts did have more money than pretty much any family at the time that they were, you know, at their peak, they had more money than the U S treasury. So they had global money essentially, <laughs> and they found a way to squander that fortune really within 54 years, you saw the first real decimation of it because that's when the first Vanderbilt air died broke. They became entitled wealthy socialites. It wasn't about value creation anymore, other than Cornelius's first son, who actually doubled the estate in nine years before he died. The rest of the family became the biggest purchasers of Manhattan, you know, mansions that have been torn down, or the breakers in Rhode Island that's not owned by the Vanderbilt family, or the Biltmore estate in the Carolinas that's not owned by them anymore. I mean, they just learned how to spend money. They didn't have certain core components to keep that glue together and to invest back into each generation. It just became about spending where the, the Rockefellers are on their sixth generation of passing on wealth. They donated $50 million to charity last year just from the interest that was coming off of the estate. And they have 153 families benefiting from that trust, but not in an entitled way. We're talking about senators, bank presidents, and a lot of things that way. So yeah, there's a lot of information that you can kind of dive into, good, bad, and different, even ugly within the Rockefeller family. But the fact that they've moved it for six generations, they've broken that curse of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, and they did very strategic things to do just that. As a matter of fact, the whole family office concept is one of the three main core tenants that they have to preserve, protect, and perpetuate that wealth. Uh, what were the other two? Okay, so the other two are the family retreat structure. So the family retreat structure is think about everything that businesses do that make a business great. Like a business that's crystal clear on their vision, a business that has their values outlined, identified, and that they're living by, a business that has operational structure and even manuals. So if you do that for your family, where you have regular meetings, just like you have regular meetings in business, where you've got a family crest that represents who the family is and what they stand for. And there's those symbols that are behind that, that family mission statement that the family can start to learn, read and be part of the family values start to guide what they're doing. And then you're creating traditions and rituals and structure with those habits to really invest in the individuals, that is the core tenet, once again, of moving the non-monetary assets, which are the human beings that are actually alive and that are moving through this. And then the third piece is the family constitution. The US built a constitution that was 4,400 words long, and it transformed and revolutionized not only a country, but a world, because pretty much every country has a constitution now. And imagine, rather than just leaving behind legal ease to future generations, if you had this dynamic piece to your trust, which was your own words as a statement of purpose and said, here's the core philosophies of who we are. Here's the biggest lessons that we learned. And here's the signposts we want to leave behind in the future so that it could be as times change governed by principle, giving some freedom and flexibility to the heirs without having to learn every lesson the hard way, with having some of the ideas captured so that there's a certain contribution in that future of how they can operate and be super productive. And inside of that, you could have everything from a family bank that you borrow from the trust and pay the interest back. Um, so that now the trust is earning interest rather than a bank, 
or if a business is doing well, teaching the other heirs what you've learned and what you're doing, certain books that could be read and that, that there's reports on that that go back to the board of trustees and see the board of trustees become the people that interpret that family constitution so that if something happens to me, that board of trustees, each one represents a characteristic that I plan on being and teaching future generations. But if something happens to me where I die early or when I die, having someone that represents who we are because it's their abilities so that that could be lessons for future generations. And then they look at that to kind of determine how the trust should be operating versus dividing, destroying and distributing, which most trusts do that say, okay, when you're 30, you get a third, 35, you get a third, 40, you get a third. And some people in their thirties, they haven't figured life out. There is no purpose. If money were just coming in, it would cripple them because they wouldn't actually focus on their own purpose, their own processes, their own skill sets being developed. So it's really that family office, family retreat structure and family constitution. When you bring that together, the core thing that holds all that together is the Rockefeller method that I share in the book, which is a way that replenishes the trust and protects the trust from some of the financial structures that avoid some of the taxation, that helps replenish if an economy is down or inflation's higher than expected or heirs make mistakes, which is going to happen. And it also protects it if there's divorce or premature death. And so there's some additional kind of financial pieces, but I love that kind of the family legacy ring is what I call it on those first three. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
There's about 12 different questions or, or trees that I want to take that. Uh, I guess the first is a statement. I, I, you know, I don't think Rockefeller, I think people know about the Rockefellers and, and Rockefeller's wealthy family or person, but they don't get enough credit for innovation. I mean, all of the gazelles framework is based on sort of Rockefeller right. habits. And, and as you're saying, there's a lot of parallels between a great business structure and a great family structure. And, you know, the other thing that occurred to me is that I've heard people say, you know, great empires, they decline slowly over time. And, and great companies are kind of in a long death spell downward because they're big enough and they have enough money. It sounds like families can be in a decline, but that can last a while because it takes a while to blow through some of that money. It does take a while to blow through some of that money. And yeah, when you think about Vern's book with the Rockefeller Habits, that's basically take that and apply it to the family. That's the family retreat structure. And so when you have heirs, the key is to invest in those heirs and actually help them develop what they're up to, what they're doing, and make sure that they have zero entitlement. Like my son said the other day, he said, hey, dad, are we rich? And I was like, I am. I, I don't know about you. That's yet to be determined, right? So like, that's kind of the attitude is like, it's there for you, but not there's zero entitlement. You work for it. And sure, you may choose to go work for a salary in the future. You may not be an entrepreneur and that's okay. I just want to make sure that they're doing something that they truly enjoy that gives them fulfillment and give them something that my family never really learned. They almost forgot, which was to build this life that you love. My great grandfather was just making sure that they could stay alive, making sure they could stay together because they were separated. And that created an immense amount of scarcity, which wasn't about value creation, wasn't about service, wasn't about major problem solving. It became almost a selfish state looking at, are we going to be okay? And in that survival mindset, creativity and innovation dies. And that's part of the reason why you see these families, you know, if A, the person just feels like they get the money because they were part of the lucky sperm club, that's going to decimate it. Or B, on the other hand, they don't feel valuable. They don't, they don't improve their skill set, you know, and they get stagnant, then that's going to be a problem as well. And then you also have just this huge amount of stewardship over that type of an estate, which is a different conversation that if you're not prepared for, then it becomes kind of a lottery winner syndrome, right? The most miserable person I've ever met was someone that was worth $100 million, all of it inherited, and they never found their place on this planet. They never felt like they were of value. So there was shame and guilt yeah. and sitting around and not having anything to do in life. I feel like purpose brings forth that power. And a lot of these companies die because if your purpose just becomes making money or spending money, that's going to destroy things. Yeah, my wife started that book, The Price of Privilege, and like couldn't finish it. She was so disturbed by it. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this question. I'm going to ask you to answer this very 101, since I know you can probably take it to, to, to 104. So going back to the, the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers, in terms of their, their strategy for passing wealth, obviously the Rockefellers had a whole strategy about values and passing on values and traditions and whatever. But was there also fundamental differences in, in the amount of money that they gave their heirs? Or really was it the values and going that stuff made the difference? Could they both have done the same thing, but didn't? Or, and again, at, at a very baseline <laughs> way for everyone to understand this. Here's the simplest way to look at it. Cornelius's supposed famous last words was keep the money together. Keep the money together. The Rockefellers had a subtle yet powerful difference. Keep the family together. And so they invested 
in their heirs. The Rockefellers really said, okay, here's someone, how do we invest in them? The Vanderbilts just were like, okay, we have this money here. Let's just make sure we keep it together. It wasn't really about the individuals at that point. Could the Rockefeller kids, even with those values, did they have millions of dollars at their disposal or did they have to go out and make it on their own in the world? Well, you look because it was, they were invested in, it's a basically a meritocracy. You just see that you could get a lot more when you're up to more things and you don't just get a like sit around and get money no matter what. That's the big difference. Like you've got money no matter what as a Vanderbilt. Just got it. It's very interesting. So what does it mean in your eyes to build a family legacy? Family legacy is something I believe that you live and leave. I think for too many people, legacy is about something that they leave behind at the sacrifice of enjoying life. How many business owners have you met? Because I've met so many that they say stuff like, that they're doing things for the family, but the family's just saying, we just like to spend more time with them. We like to have them present when they're actually here. And I think at a certain point, it's pretty easy to put food on the table in today's society, especially if you live in America, it doesn't take much. It used to take a lot more. And so that's kind of a tired excuse. A lot of times people get really trapped in their ego and they define success improperly. Success is defined by the cover of a magazine and you have more money than anyone else. Did you meet your potential was only the potential of how much your business sold for, not about like the enjoyment you had along the way. So I believe that part of legacy is figuring out depth and harmony, depth in more than one area. You could be rich, but not necessarily wealthy because you could have a lot of money, but not have much purpose or not have the right mindset or not have the right health or not have any relaxation, rejuvenation or recreation. So. For me, legacy is something that you live along the way and setting up a life that you truly are inspired by and that you love. And it might be that I don't think anyone has perfect balance, but what I mean by harmony is, yeah, you might be doing a big project and spending more time in it, but then you're finding some time to go and rejuvenate so that you come back strong or spending time you know, with the ones that you love and doing other things like your hobbies instead of being so one-dimensional. And then it is leaving behind signposts and leaving behind inspiring things for future generations like my grandfather did for me. He took me around in his red you know, work van and spent time with me and taught me things. And so that was legacy. He taught me what it meant to get the family together and what it meant to create traditions. And then we created some of our own traditions. And so we built upon those things. And so we're unveiling here shortly a family crest that's now an actual shield that's going to go on the mantle of our cabin. We bought a cabin because that cabin is legacy. It's on a river. It's got big trees. We have all these traditions now of getting our family there, whether it's for Thanksgiving or New Year's or just certain times of the year. Like It's all these experiences we have along the way, and it's part of how we express love and gratitude and acknowledgement to those people that are close to us and how we're there for them in key moments as well. So I think of legacy as how we live now and the impact that has on other people after we die. And if you've actually written that down and have that family constitution, or you've actually created traditions that last beyond when you die, that other people are now enjoying and benefiting from. But to me, legacy is when you just find people continuing to improve life, recognize themselves and love themselves, and understand what I would call their sole purpose, where they're out there doing truly what they enjoy in life, knowing that, yes, there's going to be some failure, but they have the resiliency. 
knowing that everything doesn't always go according to plan, but they have a bright future that they're excited about. I find when people don't have legacy, everyone's wishes that they had a better future, but they're stuck in the past. And to me, when I leave my legacy, I want people to feel like there's a bright future that they're living into, that they're excited about, and they're choosing to do things that they truly enjoy without money being the primary reason or excuse why they do or don't do it, because I'm not leaving them in financial bondage. I'm giving them resources in the insights that I wrote and in the financial structure that I created that allow them to more fully express and accelerate results to enjoy life. But some of them might get $0, honestly, because if they're just thinking that they're getting that money, that's not how it's built. Have you heard the quote, success? I'm not, this is a tongue twister. Success without successors is not success. No, but I like that. You can take it. As someone once okay. said to me, he, he said, the first time I quote something, I use the source. The second time I don't, and the third time it's mine. <laughs> yeah, I, <have> no, <laughs> I, I could quote you and then you'd have to quote someone else, right? Right. There's a quote out there that I, that it's interesting that someone said, and it's funny, it's been so misattributed because other people used it. I think a lot of people said that Cheryl Sandberg said it, but she didn't. So yeah, quoting is tricky. You mentioned there in there about the crest, and I know this is another thing that you work on, have a workshop. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and how it works? Yeah, so we put together a family retreat workshop for two and a half days where some people that came to that, they're in their 60s and their kids are in their 30s. Other people, like my wife and I, we attended even though I hosted it. We had my 10 and 13-year-old there. And I'll be candid, that's the hardest work I've done all year because we had our kids there and we wrote our family mission statement with their involvement. And that was tough getting them involved. We had a graphic artist there and we started to sketch out our family crest with their involvement? What are, what are the things that mean something to them? So people support that which they help to build. And so especially with my 10 and 13 year old, we're doing these meetings twice a month now where we're talking about what they're up to and how we can support them. We're reading the family mission statement and asking what it means to each other. We're doing gratitude exercises. We're rating like, how am I doing as a dad on a scale of one to 10? So I can see if there's things that I can improve because that's that family retreat structure. Well, this workshop really kind of kicked that off for us. And it was two and a half days. I brought in a guy, Rich Christensen, who wrote Toes Turn Purple, has had five kids that are just phenomenal kids. One of them had a business that did just under a million of revenue while he was a teenager. And it was just part of their family structure doing this because they pay for their own philanthropic efforts, their own vacations, their own clothes, all that kind of stuff. And he says, I'm going to give you knowledge, not just cash after you're 15 years old. And so I said, hey, you've got the best family retreat structure. Why don't you come in and do this? And so we designed our shield. And I thought that was cool. We printed it up and we put it at the house. But I was thinking like, that's not an heirloom, us printing something at Alpha Graphics. An heirloom would be, let's get an actual real shield and let's have that built and displayed where we could see it. And then probably we'll get another one so that we can give one to each of our sons. But I'm excited to see it. We're, we're just a couple days away from actually putting it up and then we're going to unveil it at a holiday coming up here pretty soon and let everyone kind of see it. But it's got four candles, which represents my wife and my two kids and I, and then lighting that for future generations. We've got things that represent entertainment and adventure, health and fitness. We've got things on there that represent, you know, like expressing yourself. We, you know, there's, so it's like all these things about the family, but the main connection on there is we've got a lot of like an infinity symbol that kind of looks like two hearts coming together, which is talking about infinite love. So it's got all these things that really matter to us as a family 
that are captured there that my kids actually got to say, hey, what about this? And their voice was heard and now captured in that crest. And then hopefully they can continue to pass on that for generations to come. Do you have a link to the next workshop that we could share? You know, it's just an invite only thing. So what we right. can do is uh, we'll get you a link where if someone wants to learn more about it, they could talk to someone on our team and we'll just give them a dedicated phone call to have that conversation. Perfect. Because I know, I know some people are going to be interested in that. I wanted to run a theory by you that I have, you know, and I think particularly for those who have first generation wealth and really come from nothing and have, have gotten there. My theory is that wanting better for our kids for a lot of people has reached diminishing returns. I think if you talk about your grandfather and people working, you know, hard labor and coal mines and all this stuff, I can see that that what where, you know, the parents really or or, you know, someone who did not go to college and wanted to get, you know, came from another country and wanted to get their kids into college wanting better for their kids. But I, I think in the middle and upper class, the sort of wanting better for our kids has has reached diminishing returns and it's turned into wanting easier for our kids. So this is, this is a complicated question. So one, I'd love to get your your take on that. And then two, you know, how should someone think about who really worked for it and made it, you know, not ruining that hunger in their own kids? You nailed it. I really think this is a major problem. So I'm just going to give you what Rich taught me. So Rich, who I mentioned just a moment ago, these are a couple of things that he does with his kids. When they turn 12, he takes them to a third world country for 30 days. And he just spends that time in service with his kids one-on-one -on -one, with one kid at a time to see how other people are living, what it's like to see that they can actually be happy with very few material things, to have an appreciation for what's going on. And part of the reason he does that, because when you remove everyday, you know, kind of structure and you remove technology, the kids open up and are willing to listen to you because you're so close to them and paying so much attention to them and going through so much together. That's part one. Then part two is when they turn 14. He believes in the private victory instead of the public victory. And so for him, his 14-year-old last year, he took him up to the top of Kilimanjaro. So Kilimanjaro, Kilimanjaro, I think I said it wrong, Kilimanjaro. So he takes them to the top. They go through eight different climates on the hike. You know, his son's crying because it's so difficult and he's barely able to breathe and make it, but he gets him up there. And then when he gets to the top, he has a completely different perspective on on resilience, on a viewpoint from the top of the world. He's meeting kids on the way up, playing soccer with a taped ball, right? Like, and just kind of experiencing that. And it becomes one of those moments where like they go through severe hard work, but instead of becoming arrogant, like someone who maybe has always been catered to because they were the sports star. Like how many times do we see prima donnas in sports because they get to break the rules. Everybody allows them to get away with stuff because they want their talent. And then they start feeling so big about themselves. And that a lot of times starts to collide in the future because they don't know who they are. This helps people in a better way, know who they are, be able to fight through and struggle through something. And then after that, he also does kind of the launch their first business and supports them as a business coach and then takes away, hey, we're not paying for your vacations. We're not paying for your the philanthropic efforts that we do as a family for you, you're going to do it on your own. And if you want nice clothes, you better start earning the money. So he actually puts them in some of that where the consequences are smaller. I love the book Love and Logic from a parenting standpoint, because one of the major messages in that is let people and kids learn the, the lessons when the consequences are small. And I really feel like setting that up where there's truly tough love. And part of it is, you know, we've created certain rules and I'm now rewarding my kids for thinking more than doing. Like, I don't really pay them to go do chores every day because those chores, I don't want them to get in 
the thoughts of, hey, if I'm physical and brawn, then I'm going to make money. I want them to think of with their brain. And like, I was really happy the other day that my son figured out a way through an app to make 45 bucks. Now, I learned a huge lesson because he went to transfer me the money and I set up the account and he didn't use the right name because there's another Garrett Gunderson. He needed to put like two, three, six, seven or whatever afterwards. So that $45 is gone. And I said, well, here's some ways we can get it back. We weren't able to get it back. But I'm like, cool, we learned a really big lesson. He was crying. He felt really bad. But by the next day, he's like, I get it. I did that with $1.3 million, essentially. <laughs> I would have loved to learn that with a $45 lesson. And so I think that the helicopter parent, you know, that never wants their kids to be hurt or injured or exposed to certain things, we see that happening with, you know, making life too easy on kids. And it doesn't mean that they have to starve or go without or that you know have to be spanked or any of that kind of stuff what it just means is they've got to learn what it means to actually earn create value and get rewarded for that value without having someone do the work for them yeah that is it's a huge issue an idea for friday four that's percolating in my head because you mentioned it about sports and that i'm going to write it's going to be called character coach and it's based on and my boys are involved in competitive sports and I've been on all these fields this fall and I see these parents who are just, they are coaching from the sidelines, uh, you know, move by move after the game. You should have been here. You should have done that, whatever. A, it's a lot of it's negative. But I'm thinking about, do you spend this much time coaching them in the other aspects of life on, you know, that tough discussion you had with your friend? Like, it, it seems like 90% of parenting for a lot of parents is, is going into sports coaching and not life coaching with their kids. Man, I get, you know, I've seen it. When my oldest son was playing baseball, their little team was the eight-year-olds playing against the nine-year-olds and they're just getting crushed all year. And all of a sudden they go on this major run in the playoffs. And now they're in the championship game. And they asked me to coach third base because the coach didn't show up. And I didn't know all the rules. Like if the ball hits the infield, you can't send them. I'm sending people home and I'm getting people in my face screaming at me. And people are screaming at the kids. And Robert, I, I, didn't, I haven't felt that amount of stress even when I played sports and I was actually wanting my son to do so well. I was so wrapped up in it and I just saw how tempting that could be. And so I get why it's so tempting, but I also get why it's so destructive. It's a loss of freedom for the kids. They're now, they're not enjoying the experience because am I doing this right or not doing this right? You know, I, I, when people get that feeling in business, they make more mistakes because they don't have that kind of flow and we start to destroy it. And you just see a lot of parents acting like total a-holes you know, not only to their kid, but to the entire team. And like, it's bringing out some of the worst that people have to offer. And yeah, what if we just took some of that energy in a positive manner on teaching the most important lessons in life, like what Rich did? I mean, when you see Rich's kids, you see the payoff of that. Right. It's phenomenal. He had two kids leading the kids during the workshop and it was amazing, you know, so. Yeah, look, we're going to have a lot of great athletes, by the way, statistically, most of whom will never do anything or be able to like a living off that then turning into, you know, poor character adults and leaders and, and, and the stuff where 99% chance they're going to need those skills. And it just seems to me to be way out of whack between the overcoaching in sports and the undercoaching in, in, in life. You know, my, my wife had a discussion with my daughter a few weeks ago and she's really great at this. And, and someone, you know, she's a freshman in high school and someone had sort of wanted to look at her homework in, in a, a review session or study hall. And so they talked through that, like, 
it was the first time it's ever happened. So she didn't know how to react in real time. But then what do we do if the, someone asks again? What do we do if that person asks again? And really walk through the scenarios a lot because those, those are the situations in life that are, are going to end up mattering more. Totally. And, and I think that's where Rich nailed it. Private victories versus public victories. Yeah. That builds confidence instead of arrogance. Not that every public victory creates arrogance. It's just more susceptible. Yeah, you got you got to have a win as a teenager these days that you don't want to put on video or picture where you can actually enjoy it for yourself, right? I mean, that is a, right. I think this is where technology, right? This, these people talk about how it's fundamentally changing. You know, it, it is it is moving people away from intrinsic motivation to extrinsic motivation where you can't feel good about something unless you get a certain number of likes or follows or whatever they're called on Snapchat. <laughs> right. <laughs> Snap faces, Bill Belichick would call it. Snaps. All right. Well, I always like to wrap up with this question. I know we could go on forever, but I'd love to hear about a personal or professional mistake. It could be one or a repeated one often is interesting that you've learned the most from in your life. Okay. So one of the, one of the things I found with how I operate is if someone does me a big favor or has been there for me or does anything in general, I'm more susceptible to being... I don't know if I'd call it abused, but I'm just more susceptible to doing things I would have never done otherwise. So the big lesson was had this guy I'd known for a really long time. And, you know, he'd always treated me so well, always kept his word with everything. And, you know, we were going to buy a building together. And, you know, he accommodated on multiple occasions, several things and was always so gracious. Then he used that kind of favors that he did for me to ask me to do things like, introduce him to people or invest with him that I, pro- I would have been like, that's not what I do. That's just not who I am. But then I let, I had that in the back of my head. Right. And I'm like, ah, oh, he did do this. I'm, I'll make that introduction. And some of those things didn't go well. So I just, I was like, man, I, I really changed my behavior to try to compensate because I felt indebted. The second thing that will happen is integrity is a, a big thing for me, but some people don't define integrity the same way. So it makes it very difficult to do business with them. And I found that I was always doing everything I could to keep my word, even if someone else broke theirs. And when I got clear that the agreement is now broken, and so it's either time for a new agreement or once it's broken, it's okay to exit. Once again, it's a similar thing where I'm now doing things that are harmful to either me or other people during those times. And so I think just the overall dynamics of relationships are where my biggest lessons have been and the most painful lessons of being really clear about who I spend my time with, who I share things with, who I just spend less time with because of either not sharing the same values as them or not liking how they treat me or especially if I see someone that is just super negative to their spouse, I'm like, cool, I'm out, you know, like, yeah. that's fine. It's just, I don't want that to happen where I start thinking that's okay in my marriage. And it just shows me that if I'm ever in a partnership with them, how I'm going to be treated. I remember I got in a bad partnership once and the first time I saw him around his wife, he was such an a-hole. <laughs> yeah. People aren't different in their personal life and business. And then I remember I tell my wife, I'm like, oh, my God, can you imagine being married to him? She goes, you're in a business partnership with him. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God. He, and he's, he is an a-hole. I need to get out of it. <laughs> you know, like that moment, I'm like, okay, this is going to be expensive, but I'm getting out of this thing. So, so I think that um, if I just summarize all that, I just have three categories with people, friends. And friends are people that I invite into my life. 
I say yes to their invitations anytime I can. If I can, I tell them, please keep inviting me. It's just a matter of like, you know, what I'm doing, not a matter of whether I want to go or not. Like one of my best friends invited me to something tonight and I'm like, oh, I'm in Seattle. I, I won't be able to go, but please invite me next time. And I try to invite him to something. Then I have buddies. Buddies are people that I would never do business with a buddy. Like they just, even if they want to do business, they're just fun people to be around. But business is usually brutal. I can think of one person that my wife was like, oh, it's a great idea that so-and-so has. You're going to do that with them? I'm like, no, they're a buddy. I don't care how compelling it is, how much money can be made. I know what it's like to do business with them. I see it. It's never fun. And then the third category is the most important category. It's the friendly category. I used to try to convince people if we didn't share values or if they saw the world different than me or they did something I perceived as wrong, I would see it like my moral obligation and duty to confront them and to fight with them over it and spend a lot of my energy and time. And then I eventually realized people are going to change if they want to. People are going to accept it if they want to. And if they don't, like I remember one guy just agreeing, oh, you're right, because he introduced me at an event. And when he introduced me, he said, this man has owns all the skyscrapers in Utah. I'm like, well, I own 45% of a three-story building, and that's it. I don't know that I would say that's all the skyscrapers or that's the skyscraper. He said every speaker at this event is one of his clients. Other speakers at the event were people I'd never met, like uh, Jack Canfield and Tony Robbins. I had never even met him, so they definitely weren't clients. I mean, just everything was so exaggerated. So I had a 45-minute conversation confronting him. He apologizes. And then the most hilarious thing is I go back the next time, and because I'm from Utah, he thinks I'm Mormon. So he just assumes I'm Mormon. He goes, yeah, you know, last time I was in Utah, I kneeled down and prayed next to which I don't really know if Mormons kneel down to pray either. I went to Catholic school, so that's a little bit more accurate. But, uh, you know, told this whole story that was completely fabricated. And what I realized was I'm just going to remove myself from the organization, never do anything with them again. And all the drama went away. Like, I didn't have to get in an argument. So people I'm friendly with, I say no as politely as possible to their invitations. I never share anything that's of importance or with my vision. I keep it as short as possible and small talk so I can be polite. And then I never invite them to anything. And that right there has absolutely transformed my life. It helps me avoid being leveraged or feeling indebted to people that have an agenda. It allowed me to understand when one person breaks their word that the contract is now over and I get a choice of how to maneuver. And, and you know, I, I kind of tend to be like in the give and take book by Adam Grant. Like, yeah, I'm giving people a second chance. After the third time, I'm good. After the third time, lesson learned, right? So yeah, that's probably some of my biggest lessons. Yeah, I, I've come to the same place as you on that and gone through a process on it's not worth burning a bridge. It's not you just you just keep them in the friendly bucket. It's not worth having enemies, but you just remove your energy from them. And as, as I've you know, people that are really nice people, but they don't share my values. I, I it just it goes into that bucket of I'm just not going to put time into this relationship because I don't I don't think I'll get the right um, thing out of it. You also said something else in there I think is really interesting and that I've thought a lot about on, on you know, integrity. I believe integrity is important, but I, I really prefer the word authenticity to integrity. I, I hate to say integrity is subjective, but even culturally, you know, someone might believe, you might believe that turning in your son for a crime is, is, is integral and someone else might feel that not turning in your son for a crime is, is integral. There really are, there are some subjective lines around integrity, whereas I think authenticity is you're just the same. You say what you mean, you mean what you say, and, and, and everyone knows where you stand, you know, good or bad. Right. And that's, you know, the whole authenticity where my biggest lesson with that was in 2008, Killing Sacred Cows is starting to really gain momentum. It's hitting New York Times and I'm speaking in Vancouver. And at the same time, I'm having 
a real estate partner call me before I go on stage and tell me he's declaring bankruptcy. And so then I'm calling the bank to kind of be forward about it. And they're like, just, you know, they're not being very cooperative. And so I just got on stage and I just tell the whole story. I'm going, I think killing sacred cows might actually be a confessional at this point. People want to know at my age, how I learned so much so quick. I just decided rather than defending what I've done, ask what's a good lesson. What are the things that I could learn from? And I remember going off the stage and this woman saying, that was a really cool thing that a good sales technique, that authentic thing. I was like, no, that was me just like, you know, being congruent so I could be in power and I had and it impacted people. People are really emotional about it. But it it took me a while because early on in my life, you know, like I would listen to rap after I would leave a meeting when I was 19 years old, meeting with someone on their finances. And I said, like, oh, I would never want them to know that. That seems weird. Or I was always clean shaven because you're supposed to be clean shaven so you could be trusted wearing a suit every day because that's what you're supposed to do in finance. And what I found was I just like long hair. I like having a beard. I like wearing Italian clothes. I don't like wearing suits. And I just decided just to be who I am. And if people embrace that, then that's going to yeah. be a great relationship. If they don't like that, that's completely their choice. And it's just not a fit. It doesn't mean that I'm a terrible person. It doesn't mean I need to feel bad about myself. It doesn't mean I need to go change to adopt to their their viewpoints. And I think too many people are trying to do it based upon what marketing says or what everyone else tells them they need to do. And I got to tell you, Life got a whole lot better. I mean, especially got to think I was growing up in Utah, not Mormon, and my partners were Mormon, and they judged drinking so much that I was even never drinking at the stuff when they were around because I didn't want to offend them. But then I was like, why am I doing that? And I just, it's like, if I want to drink, I'm going to drink. If I don't, I'm not going to. The great thing is my wife accepts me for all that, all that I am and all that I'm not. And that's, you know, she's the one that I really, <laughs> really want to have every day a great extraordinary relationship with and everyone else i think that that's where comedy really came in is like now people just laugh about all those weird quirky interesting things and i i just did an event where someone said hey will you tell a few jokes and it was a time where i was it was a bonus section that everybody could go home or they could stay for some more dirt to hear how we do what we do which means this is how they know to hire us if they want to and i spent 24 minutes of the hour telling jokes and everyone but one person signed up afterwards. I'm just like telling stories and I'm really enjoying this like congruency and authenticity that I've really been able to develop over the last 10 years and not trying to be a chameleon that says this is what a financial person should be or this is what a thought leader should be or this is what an author should be or a radio show host. And I feel like we've really moved into that era overall that there's a lot more people in the world that are that way and and being more successful because of it. Yeah, I'll end with a story quickly related to that, which was my dad, my uncle actually passed away and he had a bunch of really nice tuxes and I have a tux and my dad called me and he said, you should take one of these. I said, dad, I have a tux and I wear it like once every two. He says, well, if you're going to be successful, you know, then you need a tux. <laughs> and I said, you don't need a lot of tuxes. And I'm like, my definition of success has nothing to do with wearing tuxes. Uh, so <laughs> and it has to do with wearing whatever I want. So I hear you on that. Well, Garrett, I really admire what you and the Wealth Factory team have built and the important work you're doing to help families think about the legacies they want to leave. I'm really glad you could join us today and to discuss your unique approach. Well, thanks, Robert, man. I really enjoyed it. Bobby, Robert, I just we got really formal there for a minute, so I called yeah. you Robert. But I like that I have three options and you're, you're cool with all three. 
I'm good with all three. So to our listeners, you'll find links to the Wealth Factory website, the free Rockefeller article. Uh, we'll also throw in there um, how to get in touch with Garrett if you're in, his team if you're interested in the retreat. It'll all be on the episode page and on the AP website. And thank you for tuning into the Outperform podcast. And until next time, keep outperforming. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.